What you want to do is to occupy space and it's back to this mantra of give yourself permission to take up space. So if you grow tall, open your arms a little bit, nice open body language, open hand gestures, you immediately come across as somebody who is confident, relaxed and convincing. And if you are projecting those impressions, if you are projecting those images, even if you don't feel it, the audience tends to relax. And then you're thinking, oh, actually, this is going really well. So then you do relax and become more confident, relaxed and convincing. So it's part of this beautiful, virtuous circle. I'm Emily Bellet, the founder of Aspot.com, thriving community that financially empowers women, author of You're Not Broke, You're Rich, and host of The Wallet. My guest today is Vanessa Collingridge, an award-winning TV and radio journalist and leadership coach who is empowering women to quite literally use their voice, speak up, and get comfortable taking up space. A 2013 study from Duke University and the University of California found that male CEOs with deeper voices tend to manage larger companies, stay in their jobs for longer, and even make more money to the tune of $190,000 per year. But can the pitch of our voice really have an effect on our earning potential or the impact we have at work and how we are perceived as leaders? Joined by Vesper intern Millie, Vanessa shares practical hacks that we can use to try and help amplify our voices, breathing techniques that can help calm our nerves in stressful situations, as well as the subtle changes we can make to our posture in order to feel more powerful. Vanessa has boundless energy and is so passionate about boosting the visibility of women, encouraging us all to ditch our good girl mentalities and strive to be seen and heard. I'd also just like to say a quick thank you to our sponsor, PensionBee. PensionBee has helped over 400,000 customers be pension confident. It enables savers to take control of their finances by helping them transfer their old pensions together into one simple online plan. With PensionBee, you can manage your pension like you manage your bank account, check your real-time balance, see your projected retirement income, and set up contributions and withdrawals all from the palm of your hand. Plus, you get human support from your very own UK-based account manager, or as Pension B calls them, Big Keeper. You can sign up to Pension B today with the names of your old pension providers in just five minutes. And if you're self-employed, you can start a new pension from scratch. As always, with investments, your capital is at risk. Please note that this information made available on this podcast is provided for educational purposes only and does not constitute financial advice. If you have any questions, you should seek advice from an independent financial advisor. Hi, Ness. Hi, thank you so much for having me. You're very welcome. So you're here on the on the Wallet podcast with Millie also, who is our intern. And she was the, the one, uh, you know, introducing uh, you to, to the Vespod community. So she's also going to ask you a few questions. And I guess we're going to talk about giving women the tools to have more impact in whatever they do on a personal level and, and professional level. So I was quite interested to hear about what you're doing today, maybe your you know, impact coaching business and how you help women realize their, their potential. My impact coaching business is a source of utter joy. It is something I find so energizing, giving women a voice, women who haven't traditionally felt confident or empowered enough to use their voice or who've had their voices silenced. 
but enabling them to have the confidence and the skills to step out of the shadows, to step into the limelight, to make their voices heard and really take up the space in society that we want them to do, that they want to do, and we need as a society for women to do. So I just think everybody wins. And I love being part of that process to unlock people's potential. It, it gives me endless joy. You know, completely agree with that. At Vespot, that's our mission, get, you know, more money in the hands of women. But we, we also have to do a lot of work and show up and ask for more. So this is all really important. I wanted to start a while back, maybe to your Oxford University days. And maybe I think Millie was telling me you often felt out of place coming from, you know, a state school. Did you have any imposter syndrome? I mean, did that help you or how did you overcome actually the, the, this feeling? Yeah, that's a really interesting question because if you'd have known me growing up, I was quite a confident person. I was the person that was in the lead in school plays. I was in the local youth theatre. I was in public speaking. I was singing. I was in the choir. I was in the orchestra. I was one of these always busy people. I was always wanting to be involved. And yet I managed to get into Oxford on the state school entrance scheme. It's called a Tanner Scholarship Scheme at Hartford College. And they specifically took people from disadvantaged backgrounds. I came from a pretty rubbish school, sixth form college. I hadn't done the right A-levels because I later found out my college, my sixth form college, didn't have enough money to do the right A-level. They had to do a kind of an also-ran version of geography A-level because we couldn't afford to do both physical geography and human geography. So we did this kind of hodgepodge. It wasn't right. So I was really surprised to get into Oxford. But when I got there, I thought I would be fine because I was basically quite a confident person. But I got there and was utterly silenced because I was suddenly surrounded by very confident people who felt that everybody had a right to hear their opinion. And I felt so constrained. I felt everything I said was wrong, was stupid. I didn't have a right to be there. I'd only got in because Well, I had a, a bit of a notorious interview. I actually swore at my interview panel and walked out saying, I wouldn't go there if they paid me. Then they offered me two years and I'm like, I'm there, I'm in. But you know, I had three A-levels. Everybody else had five A-levels. I had the wrong A-levels. Everybody else had the right A-levels. So I had massive imposter syndrome against all the odds, really. But what I did was, well, Firstly, I tried to leave. At the end of my first time, I rang up Manchester University, which was my second choice, and said, will you take me? And they were, luckily, they said, wait it out a year and then we'll take you. But of course, within a year, I'd found my feet and, and got organized. But I realized very quickly that I needed to change my professional practice, as I would now call it. Of course, I didn't back then. But you learn that the first thing to do is stop. Stop, think, act recognize what's going on. Don't turn it all on yourself and think there's a problem with me. There is a problem with the situation. So that depersonalizes it. Then it's a case of start watching and learning from other people. So I looked at how all these other people were talking and behaving. I was like, why is that successful? Why is what I'm doing not successful? And why is what they're doing successful? And slowly started trying to understand what they were doing that worked and also set that in a context of being very knowledgeable about the 
extra layers of guff that women have to wade through in society. So I suppose I, I was quite feministically oriented as a child. And then this lack of confidence and the imposter syndrome connected together, it fused together in my first year when I realized, okay, we're dealing with something that I've never had to deal with before because I've grown up in a tiny little village where everybody had known everybody else since birth. Now I'm having to make an impression. And I didn't have the skills to do that. So it was a case of know what you need to do, learn those skills and get on with it. Because otherwise you will never be able to speak out loud again. And as you can hear, I'm somebody who does like to talk. <laughs> and actually, I mean, you're, you know, award-winning journalist, author, BBC broadcaster. So from this first year at university to getting there, you know, what, what happened? How did you build your, your confidence, you know, the, this power of speaking up, showing up, because I guess these are skills that you don't develop in just one day. They can take time. What, what can anyone do to, you know, I mean, I think, yeah, realizing that you need to do the work is one thing, but then there's big work on, you know, mindset and understanding maybe some techniques. So what happened to you after this, this first year? Okay, well, as I said, I was very academic, but I was also very maverick. And I think actually having that difference from the norm, being quite energetic, hyper, quite maverick, very creative thinking, because what I wanted and what I needed wasn't there, I was just sod it. I'm going to build it. I'm going to make it. So I started building my own networks. I started some feminist geography networking sessions. I invited speakers in. If I wasn't learning what I wanted to learn, I started inviting people in. And without knowing it, that upskilled me in confidently speaking out, speaking to people well above me in the hierarchy of academia, inviting them in, and then making sure that they were okay and just organizational ability, I think really helped. So I was learning soft skills without realizing it simply because what I wanted to do wasn't there. It didn't exist. And I think that's a really big lesson, isn't it? So you've got a choice. You can either follow the herd or you can strike out on your own and do something different. But that might mean that you've got to build it. And that requires organizational skills. But luckily, because I'd always had a very multitasking, busy life. I'd always been involved in a hundred different clubs and societies and stuff. That to me was normal. So it wasn't as intimidating as perhaps it might've been. It was just, I needed to do it in a slightly different direction this time, do it to build my academic career. And then when I left university, my journalistic career as well. So I guess for me, there's lots of, of parallels with entrepreneurship. And, and for me, I have, I mean, I went to business school and, and in France, you just follow this path. Everyone is telling you, you're really good at what you do, but don't be too loud, you know, <laughs> don't do these things. And then I started working in banking and people told me, yeah, this is very good. You're well paid and you should continue this path. But going into entrepreneurship, are you crazy? Like you're going to leave this, you know, stability. And, and I didn't know how to how to speak, how to communicate, because also in France, that's definitely not something you learn. And I would have loved to learn like all these soft skills much earlier on. I had a very good, you know, finance background and math background, but you know, that's, that's not everything. So if we look at the state of entrepreneurship here in the UK, uh, I think a lot of women are starting businesses. They don't necessarily get funding. Uh, there's a lot of barriers for women to get started, but I think confidence is a big one. So would you have a few tips for 
for women who, who just want to do something different and they feel they don't have the skills or they don't have a voice or they're, you know, there's always something we don't have. So how can you do something if you're not ready 100% to do it? Right. Well, I think you hit on it in what you've just said, because you said you were always told to keep quiet, keep your head down. And this is the biggest myth that is punted to women. Women are raised to be the good girl, to work hard, to keep quiet, to keep your head down, to do the work, deliver on time, and then ask for more work and then more work and then more work. That strategy has not served women well, because all it means is you end up getting more work, doing the work of two or three people, and then economically, it doesn't make sense to promote you. So you actually restrict your opportunities by being a good girl. So I want all your listeners to be bad girls, to embrace their inner bad girl and just say, no, I want to do something different. I want to be creative. I see other opportunities, but then plan for it. So don't keep your head down. I was always told growing up, put your head beneath a parapet. Don't be precocious. You know, don't be visible. And I think part of my career structure was really breaking free of that. It was like a delayed teenage rebellion, if you know what I mean, going into perhaps the most highly visible job of being a TV presenter, for goodness sake. You can't get less visible, less, less, um, you know, head beneath the parapet. I think you just have to follow your authentic self. That's such an overused expression, but you are either a good girl or you're not a good girl. And there is nothing bad about not being a good girl in some ways. You have got to have that energy to have that vision and then put steps into place to make it happen. Even when I started out in television, I avoided networking because again, there's the thing, you're not allowed to be visible. You're not allowed to make yourself seen. And I realize now that set my career back years. So what I would really advise people to do is if you don't fit, if you have itchy feet in your current environment, you know there's something else you want to be doing. Start planning, start building your relationships, start building your networks, nurture those networks from the earliest stage of your career. Ask for things. Women aren't good enough at asking for stuff because we're told don't ask, you know, sit there, be quiet. And if you're good, it'll come to you. Well, I'm sorry, but that just doesn't work. So ask for help, ask for advice, ask to be mentored, ask for peer support. If that doesn't exist, build your own peer support network. So put in place what you need to do what you want to do. And don't let other people set the framework for you. If the framework isn't there that you want to do, you want to fulfill, then build it. Because you can be sure that if you start building it, other women will come forward and help you do that because you will not be the only one who wants to make a change. Yeah, be intentional about what you want to do. And, and I think, Millie, you had, you had a question about that because you attended Ness workshop a few weeks back. So maybe, maybe you want to ask Ness your, your question. I did. It was a super workshop. Um, so yeah, so you've explained that women have been, I suppose, conditioned to keep their heads down, work hard and to not speak up, which can be hugely damaging consequences as we've seen women's careers. And they become too discounted, overlooked, talked over. So I was wondering what tactics can we deploy as women to overcome minimizing behaviors and instead take up space? 
Okay, that's a huge subject and we could still be here in eight hours time quite happily with me still talking about ideas and suggestions. Number one, know what you're getting into, know the landscape, understand the dynamics of gendered communication, understand the, the gender landscape. So know that men are twice or two and a half times more likely to ask questions than women. So men get heard. If men get heard, men become visible. If men are visible, when you want somebody to do the next job, you're like, oh, he's got a lot of ideas. He's got all of, a lot of pizzazz. So flip that around. Make sure you make yourself visible. Make sure you ask questions. If somebody manterrupts you, as in <laughs> men overlapping women, interrupting women, you say, let me just finish. And then you finish. Then what you can control, control. So impact is all about how you look, how you sound, and what you actually say. So in terms of how you look, you know this thing about the male gaze that women are looked upon. We are kind of passive recipients of the male gaze. Well, it's time we took charge and reclaimed ourselves from that. So be aware of what you can do for the other person. So you're not the passive recipient of the gaze. You're now looking at the audience. So who is that audience? What do they need? What's the best way to give them what they need? So often if you're talking to a group, you want to be in the same tribe as them. You want to be relatable. So make sure that your dress and everything is relatable. Now, relatable either on a level or slightly above. So one of the mistakes I made when I first started out in television was I graduated from university with cocktail dresses and rowing kit. There was nothing else. So when I went to work, I looked around and everyone was wearing jeans and jeans and a shirt or jeans and a t-shirt. So I went to work for the first year of my life in jeans and a t-shirt. Then I realized that the women getting the promotions were the women who looked like the next level up. So it's almost like that old mantra of dress for the job you want, not the not the, the job you've got. Be relatable to being promoted, to being the manager, not being the you know the worker bee. I, I have a quick question on that actually, and that's a really interesting point. So I worked in I worked in banking for a while, mostly men wearing suits. So I ended up wearing suits, wearing heels. But I wasn't me. So I was sort of losing my identity, losing authenticity in the process and sort of acting like them. But in the end, I'm wondering if you want to create an impact. And I know when you're young, it's extremely hard when you get into this type of, you know, huge corporate and stuff. But how can you also stay yourself and stay authentic to yourself, but still like make a difference, even if you don't want to, you know, dress like them or look like them or, or, or think like them? Can you do that? Yes, absolutely. And the key is the next part, which is body language. So one thing you can do straight away, everybody can do straight away, even while you're listening to this, you can grow tall. Imagine somebody is pulling a thread from the top of your head and grow tall. Now, this isn't just a visual thing. This is a biofeedback mechanism because there's loads of fantastic science that underpins this idea that if you grow tall, it's what animals do in the animal kingdom, it's self-aggrandizement, but it projects a more powerful you. 
And there's really good work by Amy Cuddy. You can look up her work online if you look up her TED Talk, Amy Cuddy Power Posing. And just have a look at her research. It's so good. And she's so brilliant in how she describes it. But what you want to do is to occupy space. And it's back to this mantra of give yourself permission to take up space. So if you grow tall, open your arms a little bit. So there's daylight between your, you know, the crook of your elbow. You're holding your hands kind of roughly at hip level. You can then bring them into play for using beautiful hand gestures, nice open body language, open hand gestures. You immediately come across as somebody who is confident, relaxed, and convincing. And if you are projecting those impressions, if you are projecting those images, even if you don't feel it, the audience tends to relax. And then you're thinking, oh, actually, this is going really well. So then you do relax and become more confident, relaxed, and convincing. So it's part of this beautiful, virtuous circle. So that is a really big thing. So that's how you look, how you sound in terms of making your voice work for you. Now, nobody is going to listen to a podcast where you talk like this the whole time. So be aware of your voice and make sure that you breathe, take pauses and use your voice almost like you would write a musical score. You cannot make beautiful music that people fall in love with if you just play the same note the whole time. So try to become aware of your voice become aware of your inflection, your intonation, and you want to vary your pitch, your tone, and your volume. And when you can get those dramatic pauses, that dramatic emphasis, then you start creating the perfect vehicle to get your message across in a way that makes people want to listen and to keep listening. And then the what you actually say is crafting your message. And this is the classic area where people fall down. Because if I were to say to most people, you've got to give a presentation tomorrow on X, Y, Z, they would go away and think, oh my God, what am I going to say? Uh-uh, wrong question. It's not what do I want to say? It's what does the audience need to know? And what's the best way to give them that? Well, the best way is to focus, take that arrow away from your head, put it over the audiences. Because not only does that take the tension and the pressure off you, it also means that that message will be targeted, meaningful and welcomed. We looked at, at a piece of research from Duke University and University of California that discovered that out of the 800 CEOs of public companies that they studied, the CEOs with deeper voices managed larger companies and made more money. So in fact... Uh, a decrease of a quarter in voice pitch was associated with an increase of almost 190k US dollar in annual salary. So we can make money from this. And based on this, can you give me an example of how you do these like, you know, three voices? Okay, now this is where on our workshops, we have so much fun. Millie, how, how much fun are the voice coaching <laughs> sessions? <laughs> They are excellent. I love the BBC Radio 4 voice transition too. It's very scary. Absolutely. You're listening to BBC Radio 4 with me, Vanessa Collingridge. So yes, you can just, you can ape it. Now, there is lots of little um, hacks that you can do to help your voice. Firstly, the basic is get your posture right. And again, that's feet grounded on the floor, or if you're sitting, your weight evenly distributed between your hips. And then you're growing tall. That opens out your chest. 
and allows the breath to come in and out. You should all, all, all look up belly breathing and follow that. So that's when you breathe in, you're actually expanding your diaphragm and your stomach goes out. And then as you exhale and you start talking, your stomach goes back in again, but you're sort of really utilizing your um, your diaphragm to its fullest extent. And we're not used to doing that. We're used to being very lazy and talking to people within about a two foot radius of us. Whereas actually learning to breathe properly, it has the impact of improving your voice projection, improving your volume, improving the quality of your voice, especially if you've got one of those voices that goes a bit quavery. So posture, breathing, and then the inflection intonation. And a lot of that is about warming up your facial muscles. Now, this is when I get on my soapbox and say, women are encouraged to be a size zero, as in to not exist. We're encouraged to be silent. We're told to be silent. And we're also encouraged not to emote. Oh, you don't want to be that dreadful word, hysterical, that's so gendered and so vile. To make your voice interesting, you need to stretch your mouth, to stretch your whole face and wake up your skin. So, listeners and Emily and also Millie, we are going to do this right now. So what I want you to do, we won't do the full range because that would just be too weird, frankly, on a podcast because people can't see what we're doing. But I want you to, first we'll start by rubbing your face, rub your face, rub your face and your cheeks and your eyebrows and up into your forehead, rub either side of your nose, your top lip. We're really bad about keeping tension in top lips and all the way around and then imagine you've got a piece of honey, a piece of honey on your nose and you're trying to wipe it off. And <laughs> then you have the five vowels, which are Emily, Millie, A, A E, e I, I, O, U. So basically when you're, when you're doing those five vowels, you are, when you say A, you're opening up your face and your eyes. Remember, we talk with our whole face. Our face is a major communication zone, not just our mouths. E, you're stretching your mouth wide. You're stretching your mouth wide. A, E, I, and your jaw goes right down. O, you're stretching your mouth into an O. And then U, you're, it's almost like somebody has put a pull thread through your lips and stretching them forwards and you're screwing up your eyes. So by the time you've done A, E, I, O, U, you have basically warmed up your face. You are awake. So what's that? what that has done is wake up your voice. And when you've woken up your voice, your voice will have the light, the shade, the, the tension, the drama. And it will have all those beautiful musical elements that you need to make your voice heard and make people want to keep listening. Then it's things like using emphasis, using pauses, the dramatic pause. Yes. So it's all these little techniques, but you can't do any of that until you've properly warmed up. So what I would say is, again, think professionally. Don't just blunder into a presentation. Stand tall, grow tall, head up. The other classic thing women do is they tilt their heads to one side. The Lady Diana, your head must be straight. You must have a really strong center line because that looks forthright and confident. And you believe in yourself. You believe in yourself. And that has really important feedbacks within your hormonal system. So it reduces the stress hormones, it reduces cortisol, and it increases testosterone in terms of testosterone being the, the hormone that allows for that pure focus on you know, achievement success. It's that kind of rah, 
hormone. So if you can improve your focus and your drive, but reduce your stress, you will be unstoppable. And I want every single woman listening to this to be unstoppable, her best, most unstoppable ball of energy, but focused energy. I love it. And that, that was my next question, but you've, you've answered it beautifully about calming your nerves. And I know, I mean, for me, that was the hardest was maybe public speaking, but I know for Millie, it can maybe go to interviews or when she's going to start her job over the summer. And I've tried this power poses in the work and the breathing for me was really important. And, and I started meditating a lot a few years ago and that to be honest, made a huge difference. But do you have a few tips for us around breathing exercises? Because I feel at the moment, everybody is doing some sort of meditation on their phone, but some of it can be quite light breathing. And I feel you can do a lot more. I mean, if you want to be really quiet in your mind, what can you do to, to help yourself in these tough moments? Okay. So breathing exercises are amazing. So when you are like, The two of you are sitting down. I'm sitting down. So we'll do this exercise sitting. So again, ground yourself, weight evenly between your hips, as if you're being pulled from the top of your head, you grow tall, shoulders down. You're increasing that space between your ears and your shoulders. Okay, give your head a bit of a sugar and bring your shoulders down. What I would say is hands out slightly in front of you. If you're sitting at a desk, you can rest them on the desk. And I'm holding the top digit of my um, middle finger, just loosely with the other hand. And that puts me in a really nice kind of tripod pose. And then I'm going to start my breathing exercises. So I've got a straight back, I've grown tall, and then I'm going to start breathing. One, two, three, four, hold it. And then I would take an extra breath in, hold it in, and then four, three, two, one, hold it. And you think your lungs are empty. They are not. So exhale. Now we're going to go up to six. So settle yourself and then breathe in. One, two, three, four, five, six. Hold it. As you've breathed in, your lungs have expanded, your diaphragm has extended. And then you think your lungs are full. They are not. Breathe in again. And then hold it and then slowly exhale. Six, five, four, three, two, one. Be aware of your diaphragm pushing up and squeezing that air out. You think your lungs are empty. They are not. Exhale. I would tend to go up to eight, 10, 12, 16. I love these. Breathe in slowly, breathe out slowly, breathe in for longer, breathe out for longer. Because what that does is it grounds you. It takes away the nerves. It reduces that beating heart. It gets that correct balance between your oxygen and your carbon dioxide so you don't go lightheaded. It also just centers you and gets you ready for anything. That recalibrates in your mind that your lungs are huge. You do not ever need to run out of breath when you're talking. That doesn't mean your lungs aren't big enough. It just means your breath isn't being taken in efficiently. And that will improve the quality of your breath. It will also improve the quality of your breathing, give you better oxygen, which wakens you up, which makes you feel good, which makes you feel absolutely on fire, which allows you to be the amazing, fantastic, entrepreneurial woman that you know you really are. 
you, you are good vibes of, a, of the week. That's, you know, that's what we needed because uh, with, with all that's happening to women at, at, at the moment. Thank you for that. And I, I wanted to ask you, I mean, how do you balance the intensity of, you know, your passion, working with women, helping others? It can be draining. What are your, do you have any, you know, professional boundaries, personal boundaries? How do you, do you manage, you know, the, your workload, basically? The biggest gift I can share on that regard is this little phrase, stop, think, act. Too many of us, when we're asked to do something, say, oh, yes, okay, when do you want it done by? No, stop. Learn that pause of a vital few seconds because your brain can work so much faster than your mouth can. So in the time that it would have taken you say, uh, yeah, I just need to get my diary, but I think I can do that. Your brain will have actually then taken that time to think, well, actually, no, because you needed to go to your exercise class. You wanted to work on your professional plan, your career strategy. This is another thing that women aren't tending to be very good at because we've never been taught to look after ourselves. Take time, make time to plan and strategize. Plan your career, strategize. Who do you need to speak to? How are you going to get to them? This kind of thing, build your networks. So stop, think, act before saying yes. Now, passion does come really easily to me. So I am the world's worst at saying yes, especially if it's something I feel really strongly about. But all of us need to stop, think, act and look after ourselves. It's that old adage about the aeroplane. You have to put your oxygen mask on before you can help somebody else. And even the people you love the most in the world. If you don't have your oxygen mask on, you lose consciousness, you can't help them. So we need to look after ourselves. I've got four kids. I've got a dog. I've got huge amounts of animals. I've got a garden I want to look after. I've got friends and family I need to care for and nurture. I'm lucky I do a job that gives me joy. It gives me energy. Even a three-hour workshop energizes me. But I have learned I need to do that strategizing. I need to stop, think, act. And so planning for me is absolutely essential. Women carry an enormous mental load. I think one of the big things that lockdown has told us is we are carrying the vast bulk of the emotional and mental labor of making our environments work. We're the ones doing the homeschooling. We're the ones facilitating a lot of the, the nurturing, the caring roles, the, the doing the shopping, the looking after. And all of that takes its toll. So plan. Women are amazing. We are fantastic often at multitasking, but that can be our worst enemy as well because we just take on too much. And I know I've done that in my career. I've made myself so busy that I haven't had the energy and the readiness to be there when opportunities have come my way. So I know that I've missed out on things because I wasn't making myself ready, willing and able. Yeah. And I love your stop, think, act. And for me, that's something you could apply directly also to your finances, since, you know, money is really our, our topic at Vespod. It works for spending. Stop, think, act. What is the, the importance of, of money in your life? What is the role of, of money for you? Okay, this is a source of much hilarity in our family, because my family, my parents, or my, I'm the youngest of five kids, None of us have been 
big private sector hotshots. We all work in education, in charity work, in, um, you know, in teaching, coaching, basically helping other people. So we've grown up with not a lot of, we haven't got any inherited wealth. And we don't have a tradition of being financially aware or astute. My father was a designer and artist. My mum ran a playgroup. You know, we're all artists and creatives. So not traditionally the type of people who would be very financially savvy. But from the moment I became aware of women and women's roles and positions and the disadvantages we have in society, as well as the huge potential we also have, I knew I wanted to be self-supporting. So when all my girlfriends growing up were talking about, oh, they want to get married and they were planning their weddings, I was like, I'm going to go and get a job. I'm going to be a journalist. I'm not, don't want to get married. I want to, you know, be traveling the world and doing this and doing that. And I knew I needed to make that happen for myself. And so I, as soon as I graduated, I got myself a private pension. I was only paying in something like 50 pounds a month back in the nineties, but it wasn't just a private pension. I said to my pension person who came over, I want an ethical pension. I don't want to be investing in the oil industry. I was a geographer, an earth scientist. So I knew that climate change was a big issue even back in the 90s. I said, I want an ethical pension. I had an ethical bank account, a credit card. And everyone kind of laughed at me and thought I was a bit kind of, you know, knit your own sock brigade. And I was like, well, no, this is true. This is important. This is how I want to be. And that's the authentic way I want to be investing for my future. People aren't laughing now because I've had 30 years of an ethical pension that's actually done really, really well. So never mind that I got grade D in my economics A-level, but I kept true to my values. I knew what I wanted to achieve. And again, it's that planning thing, isn't it? You know where you want to be. You know the landscape. You understand women are much more likely than men to retire and face poverty. Pension poverty is such a big issue for women. I didn't want that to be me. And I knew that I didn't come with inherited wealth, inherited knowledge, the structures that would have helped me. I, When I joined the BBC in my early 20s, they said, oh, you need to be self-employed. You need to be a freelancer. I was like, oh, I don't really know how to do that. So I went and got an accountant. I didn't really understand things. I took my partner. He spoke to my partner, not me, even though it was me earning the money. So I sacked him and I went and found myself a female financial advisor and a female accountant. And to this day, I have female financial advisors and female accountants, because I'm then not afraid to ask the silly question. I don't feel on the back foot. They are much better in my experience of explaining things and explaining things in a way that's relatable to me. I don't really understand. I've got lots of good financial products now because I've got a brilliant female team who I go through what I need and they translate it into financial speak and then talk it through with me and I then make decisions. But as I said, I vowed never, ever to be beholden to a man, whether that's a male partner or a male accountant. So you, again, stop, think, act, plan, and make sure that whatever choices you make feel right to you. So as I say, know what you want and then build the structures you need to make sure that happens in a way that's really authentic and you feel really comfortable about. Thank you. Can I ask you three quick fire questions about money? Okay. <laughs> What's your best financial decision ever? Uh, my piano. Because when I was 27, my grandmother died. She left me 2,000 pounds. And 
I had always wanted to play the piano. My family couldn't afford a piano. We didn't have space for a piano. And so I bought, blew the entire 2000 quid on this beautiful 1911 vintage baby grand or boudoir grand piano. It sat for about 10 years before I even had time to start learning it, but I always planned to learn it. I had my kids and we did lessons together. My oldest son was very, very good at piano. He then got a scholarship to music school and he's now about to leave school and become a professional musician. So investment might be not even for my generation, but the next generation. It has changed all our lives for the better. So there you go. Best financial decision. Buy a piano. And now the worst financial decision. My own worst financial decision ever was probably when I first started out at work, I worked really, really hard and didn't take a holiday for years and years and years. And then booked this amazing holiday hiking through the Great Rift Valley in Africa. And so I had my backpack, stuff of things. And then right at the last minute, I was walking through Princess Square in Glasgow and there was whistles and there was this most beautiful, beautiful old gold silk flowing skirt and a flowing shirt. And it was absolutely exquisite. And I thought that would be beautiful wafting around on the African plains. And so I bought it. I took it to Africa. It crumpled, it creased, it shrunk when we washed it in the stream. It was eye-poppingly expensive and it didn't even last the three weeks that I was hiking. I got home, it was misshapen. I threw it away and I just thought, that was a silly dream. That was a dream that didn't actually make sense when you interrogated it. So that was a case when I should have stopped, thought and acted. So don't try and put on clothes that aren't you. Be your authentic self, be who you are and be the best person you can be. And finally, what are the things you spend the most money on at the moment? Teenagers. Oh my word, teenagers. They bleed me dry. Even in lockdown, when everything is shut, all the shops are shut, they still manage to bleed me dry. As I said, all my kids are very musical. Music lessons are really expensive. So yes, they are certainly my biggest cost center. Thank you so much, Ness. It was such a pleasure to, to have you on the podcast today. Is there anything else you'd like to, to share or to recommend to anyone who's listening? So if anyone's got this far, and I have talked for quite some time, haven't I? But what I would say is, take this stuff seriously. It might sound a lot of fun and it is huge fun to do, but empowering yourselves to not only upskill in making your voices heard, stepping into the limelight, becoming thought leaders in your field, take this stuff seriously. This is not an arrogant, narcissistic move on your part. We need, society needs more diverse voices. We need more women from all walks of life to be taking positions in society to influence the shape of policy, to financial decisions, educational decisions, communities. We need your voices. So please develop your voice, develop your leadership skills and make yourself visible. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a couple of seconds to rate it on your favorite podcast platform. Also, don't forget to join our community on Instagram and Facebook and to subscribe to our newsletter on Vespa.com. 
Feel free to email me with your comments and questions over at emily at Thank you. Speak to you soon.